Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.12, The Legacy of Bacon's Rebellion. When I first set out to begin writing about Bacon's Rebellion, I had planned on this being a quick two or three episode series to cover the events. And yet here we stand on Episode 6. This week, however, we are finally ready to wrap up events in Virginia and move to Massachusetts for the turmoil that is going to take over that colony in King Philip's War. Before we move on, however, we have some more of the story to put to bed. We are going to spend this week looking at the rebellion in the wake of Nathaniel Bacon's sudden death. This is going to include the return of Berkeley and his plan of getting retribution on those who wronged him, as well as the English response to the rebellion because they are finally about to jump into the conflict. Finally, I want to take some time to look at the legacy of Bacon's Rebellion. What did it mean long-term for Virginia? Beyond that, what was the rebellion? Was it a riot against a corrupt individual, or was it a greater independence movement that took place 100 years before the American Revolution? We have a ton to cover today, so let's jump right in and start addressing these questions. I had mentioned last time that the death of Bacon does not mark the actual end of the rebellion. In fact, after Bacon died, there would remain several pockets of resistance. However, as an organized effort that was fully united throughout Virginia, that part of the rebellion did in fact die on October 26 along with Bacon. While I would love to detail each one of these little groups that fought on, I'm going to end up largely having to bypass them in the interest of keeping my series on Bacon's rebellion under 50 episodes. However, do be aware that some groups continued to hold out and fight, though their fights were largely uncoordinated from the other rebel holdouts. Immediately following the death of Bacon, the main theater of fighting was along the James and the York rivers. This is largely because even with the losses, Berkeley had managed to maintain some advantage when it came to fighting at sea. The death of Bacon had come at a time when one would expect fighting to have naturally been dying down. Men were already tired and ready to head home to prepare for the winter, the assumption being that the fight would resume the following spring. Had Bacon survived, it would have been interesting to see what the winter months would have brought. After all, at some point the English are going to arrive, and when they do, it likely means a complete shift in everybody's plans. With the weather turning colder, the Berkeley forces still holding the naval advantage, and the main figure of the rebellion dead, Berkeley opened up negotiations in certain circles to pardon the followers of Bacon, who agreed to abandon his cause. Well, weeks before, this would have been unthinkable. After all, Bacon was winning the war. Things had certainly changed in a dramatic way in a very short amount of time. As more and more prominent figures of the revolt agreed to take an oath for Berkeley in exchange for a pardon, it did not bear well for the future of the revolution. Over the next several months of 1676 and into February of 1677, Berkeley was able to move slowly and methodically through the colony regaining control. Throughout the winter months, the Berkeleyan forces proved to outmatch the rebels and continued to assert their dominance. As the war on the rivers was collapsing, more and more Berkeley was able to increase his control over the land itself. Now, you guys might have figured out by this point that Berkeley was really pissed off about everything that had gone down during the rebellion. Not only had he personally been defied, but he had seen his home looted, his capital burnt, and himself run from the colony more than once. 
The insults of being forced at gunpoint to sign the June laws or being stood up in Gloucester were not things that Berkeley would soon forget, nor things that he was going to be quick to forgive. Berkeley was taking a good amount of pleasure from capturing and imprisoning the leaders of the revolt when he got them. None of this is to say that the rebels simply went home. Well, yes, some of them did basically just that and say that they had had enough for today and went home. Many did continue to fight on. As we will discuss, the resistance is hardly over. However, where things had so dramatically changed is that this was no longer something that resembled a cohesive rebellion. Basically, everybody was trying to hold on and not get destroyed by Berkeley's forces. What was gone was that center of power that Bacon had brought. Sure, there were others trying to hold it together, men like Lawrence and Drummond, but generally everybody was now just off doing their own thing and trying not to die. As men had flocked to Bacon when victory was so assured, those who had at one point fought for the rebel cause now quickly jumped right back across the lines for the governor. The winds were changing and is so often the case, men did not want to end up on the wrong side of the battle. Berkeley was happy to welcome the average foot soldier back into the fold. After all, he did need to make sure that he had people to fight for him. However, as for the leadership, well, that was a much different story. Berkeley had been humiliated time and time again. Bacon was dead and there was going to be no retribution he could get there. However, as for the rest of the leadership, well, Berkeley had plans for them. In the middle of January 1677, Berkeley would begin taking his revenge. Beginning with five men, some of which had been some of the earliest leaders of the rebellion, he condemned them all to death. At least some of these men had tried to work out surrenders that would have produced a more equitable peace. However, Berkeley was having none of it. On January 24th, outside the ruins of Jamestown, two of the five men were hung. Another would disappoint the governor by dying in jail, while the other two managed to escape the noose and slip back into the ranks of the rebels. This, however, does start a new phase in the rebellion. Berkeley had plans to punish those involved and was not interested in peaceful terms. For anybody who maybe was thinking about coming to terms and surrendering, the message was loud and clear. The governor was not happy to go back to the status quo or for some oath of loyalty. He fully planned to weed out the revolutionary leaders where he could and make sure that they could never rise up against him again. The English were, to say the least, very concerned about the events going on across the Atlantic in their colony. Obviously, they were ultimately going to have to respond to the events. It is here that we should take just a moment to remember how quickly things had progressed. While it may seem that May of 1676 was a long, long time ago, the fact is that it is just eight months past the beginning of the rebellion when royal troops begin to arrive in February of 1677. In order to address the rebellion in Virginia, the king, Charles II, chose to form a commission made up of three men. The first man was Captain John Barry, who would be the first to arrive in the colony with a group of approximately 70 English soldiers. These troops were there to both protect Berkeley from the rabble and to some extent protect the rabble from Berkeley. The second man was Colonel Francis Moyerson. Moyerson was sent along as he had a long history in Virginia. He had spent time there working under Berkeley and had even served as governor during periods when Berkeley was absent. His knowledge of the land and of Berkeley himself was going to prove important. 
The final commissioner, who was trailing slightly behind the others, was Colonel Herbert Jeffries. The first two commissioners came along with 70 men. Jeffries, on the other hand, was the man bringing the force. Along with Jeffries was a thousand men, all ready to fight. Ultimately, the job of restoring order throughout the colony was going to belong to Jeffries. This was, in all ways, a devastating blow for Berkeley. From virtually the moment that the commissioners arrived, they made clear that Berkeley's primary job was to do what they said and to stay out of their way. Berkeley was free to do whatever he wanted, as long as it is what the commissioners told him to do. For all intents and purposes, this would mark the official end of Berkeley's time in power and would render him nothing more than a lame duck for the rest of his time in Virginia. When the English do arrive, they do not come to restore Berkeley to where he had once been. Instead, they were there to usher in a new era of English rule. The political apparatus that Berkeley had so carefully crafted and had so enriched him and his followers was done. There was no coming back from this one. Where Berkeley was caught completely off guard is that the English were not there to simply restore order, but they were there to correct the reasons order had been lost in the first place. In this fashion, Berkeley found that, despite everything he had done, he was being viewed in many ways as being just as big of an enemy as Bacon was. This, of course, is not to say that the English came across ready to proclaim the Bacon forces as the victor. Instead, we see Charles II just throw his hands up and void out the entire year of 1676. Seriously, the king lays down a blanket veto of every single law passed during 1676. To add a final insult to the old governor, the king issued a pardon for him and his allies in the legislature for their treason. Now, you may be asking, wait, why does Berkeley need a pardon? Yeah, the guy may have been somewhat incompetent, but a traitor? The English, however, point to the fact that Berkeley and the legislators had signed off on the June laws. Sure, they were at gunpoint, but in the eyes of England, that was not a terribly relevant fact. What was relevant is that they wanted to make sure that Berkeley fully understood his place in the new order. The English issued pardons for nearly all of the revolutionaries, as well as for the people in Virginia as a whole. The notable exception being Bacon himself, who didn't much care because he had been dead for the past four months. All the pardons required of the Virginians is that they stop fighting and that they take yet another oath pledging their loyalty to the king. Berkeley was not super anxious just to totally abandon everything he had worked so hard to build and would find that he often clashed with the English forces. Deciding that he was going to assert the fact that, as of the moment at least, he was still governor, Berkeley called an assembly at Green Spring to restore the government systems that had been displaced by Bacon. However, this time there would be no free election. This just makes sense. Just because Berkeley was now appearing that he was going to emerge victorious, the reality is that there is still a whole lot of animosity towards Berkeley, and a whole lot of sympathy and support for the rebels. Sure, the support might not actually be going out and fighting anymore for a lot of people. However, in their hearts and minds, they still knew which side they chose. Free elections would have given an opportunity to once again legitimize the rebels and give them an open forum, something that Berkeley just simply couldn't allow. Instead, Berkeley allowed the local sheriff of each county, sheriffs who were loyal to him, to choose who the new representatives were going to be. This ensured that Berkeley would be ruling with men who were unquestionably loyal to him and would deny any future legitimacy to the rebels. 
drained their time in Green Springs. It was a mixture of discussion on how to get the colony back on its feet. However, mostly it was just a bunch of guys discussing how they were going to enjoy the spoils of war. Discussions were varied, however, often came back to the confiscation of land of those who had fought alongside Bacon. Because, you know, the best way to move forward is to learn absolutely nothing from the revolt that you have been fighting for months, instead of actually addressing the issues. This would mark the beginning of a tense relationship between the royal forces and Berkeley. The royal forces had two primary issues. First, as discussed before, the rebellion didn't simply end when Bacon died. Sure enough, there were still pockets of rebellion throughout Virginia. Second, they needed to deal with a royal governor who wasn't really following that command to just stay out of the way. Berkeley, ever the survivor, did all he could to avoid being the lame duck that the English intended him to be. However, the English were playing a different game than Berkeley or Bacon. They had a trained army. They had mandates from an actual king. For Berkeley, his authority was soon basically contained to his home in Green Springs, and not much further than that. In the months between February and June, Berkeley did all he could to reassert his own authority. The meeting that he had held at Green Springs, in direct defiance of those English orders to basically do exactly as we tell you, is only a single example. Suddenly, it was Berkeley who had become the rebel to the English. All of this reached ahead in early May 1677. By this point, the English were so sick of Berkeley's continued interference that some of them wanted to see him hung for treason. This would not come to pass. However, the commissioners all agreed that Berkeley needed to go. Therefore, the decision was made. Berkeley and his legislature were officially disbanded. Berkeley was stuck on a boat and sent back to England. William Berkeley would return to England in disgrace, where he would only survive for a few more months. On July 9th, 1677, Governor William Berkeley died. William Berkeley first appears in our story way back in episode 1.12. There, during his first stint as governor, he had seen the colonists defeat the Powhatan Confederacy. Now, however, it is time for William Berkeley to exit our story. It is an interesting question to wonder what would have happened if he had simply addressed the Indian threat on the frontier in a method that didn't simply include raising taxes. This ability to be completely tone-deaf throughout the entire period of Bacon's Rebellion would come to color the legacy that Berkeley left behind. Yet, for a colony that struggled so much to find stable footing for such a long time, it is worth mentioning that William Berkeley was, and still remains, the longest-serving governor in Virginia's history. For the next several years, the English would continue to snuff out small pockets of resistance. but. For our purposes, Bacon's Rebellion is now over. I want to spend the second half of today's episode discussing what the entire ordeal had meant. On the two extremes, the rebellion can be painted as nothing shy of a prelude to the Revolution of 1776. Likewise, however, others will portray it as an isolated episode of civil disobedience. Following the dispatch of Berkeley from the colony, the commissioners had to worry about making sure that those still loyal to Bacon didn't decide to rise back up in revolt. Those who had failed to get on board with the new royal plan were perched out of the government and more friendly people were added back in. Possibly as a surprise, but probably not, is the fact that by this point the royal commissioners were making little distinction between Bacon and Berkeley. 
In the months following the end of the rebellion, the Berkeley Loyalists had caused just as much of a headache for the English forces as anybody else. Ultimately, however, while the idea of purging those leaders who were on their face opposed to the increased rule of the English seemed like a good idea, the fact is that these men would prove necessary to the functioning of the colony. Within just a few years, many of the planters who had been loyal to Berkeley, and therefore purged, ended up back in governing positions. They owned large tracts of land, and much to the annoyance of the English commissioners, held a lot of power over the colony, regardless of their official government role. However, the relationship between the big planters and the rural planters was forever changed. Sure, the rural planters had just literally fought a war against the huge planters, those who had been loyal to Berkeley. However, now Berkeley and Bacon were both dead. The citizens of Virginia, despite the previous year's war, now had something in common with each other. They all despised Jeffreys and the commissioners. Jeffreys did much to curb the excesses of the large planters and instead tried to appeal to the demands of the common planter. In that way, Bacon's rebellion really was a success. The large planters, realizing that they were now living in a system where they were deeply unpopular and wanting to avoid a further reduction of their power, were themselves forced to make concessions to those common planters, which they had been so resistant to do in the past. In this way, the large planters were successful. By becoming more receptive to the needs of the smaller planters, the larger planters were slowly able to rebuild their political base. Within a few years' time, a situation had developed where the large planters and the smaller planters had become politically aligned against the continuing interference from the English troops who were just sticking around at that point. As they regained some of their political control, the large planters sought to further move along the path to rehabilitation amongst the common planters by reducing the much-hated poll tax. Recall that the poll tax was deeply hated and was one of the primary causes that made people so willing to take up arms in the first place. As the great planters were willing to allow the taxes to drop and demand for tobacco increased, it meant that there was suddenly much more money in the hands of the small farmers and less tax revenue that they were having to hand over. This leads to great increases in everybody's prosperity, and along with prosperity came further improved relations. The English forces, for their part, had come into the colony heavy-handed. Sure, they were willing to concede to some of the demands of Bacon's rebels. However, it is impossible to ignore that Virginia had, for the last 70 years, functioned pretty much independently of the home islands. Much like in New England, Virginia was fine being an English colony, as long as the English didn't interfere with the day-to-day -day operations of the colony. However, for the period between 1677 and 1682, while Virginia was occupied by royal troops, the level of autonomy in Virginia was near zero. They were taking command straight from the king, and nobody was happy about that. Virginians had their way of doing things, and the occupiers wanted to do their own thing their own way. The large planters used this to their advantage. Nobody liked having the English occupying Virginia, which for the first time in years worked towards uniting the interests of the great and the common planters alike. This leads to a monumental shift in thinking, whereby at the beginning of the 18th century, all classes of planters stood united together against the potential tyranny of the English government. They are going to remain united moving forward, and the next time that they decide that things have become intolerable, it would not be each other that they chose to fight, but rather the English in 1776. In the end, it is hard to look at Bacon's Rebellion and not consider it to be a success. Admittedly, in a far more roundabout fashion than I imagine Nathaniel Bacon would have guessed. 
However, the great planters, realizing that they needed to make those critical concessions and the reunification of the Virginia people under the joint hatred of the occupying English, managed to accomplish many of the original ends of the rebellion. Even when it came to the actual stated reason for the rebellion, Indian relations, things did improve. The large planters of the colony were still not on board with the Bacon-esque plan to deal with the Indians, chiefly genocide. They would never come around to sharing that point of view that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. However, in the years following the rebellion, they did realize the importance of Indian affairs on the frontiers and knew the powder cake that they were sitting on. And while they weren't on a mission of extermination, they would be far more attentive towards the situation when the Indians did show signs of aggression. As we just discussed, the poll tax was slowly erased, and no longer were the great planters working only to get rich at the expense of the common planters. Instead, what emerged was a far more unified colony. Once Berkeley was gone, much of that system of cronyism that had so defined the colony over the past decade and a half was largely broken. The English would remain an occupying force in Virginia until 1682, when the majority of the English had died off from disease, including Jeffreys, who died in 1678, and the remaining would be recalled back to England. When looking at Bacon's Rebellion, it is completely impossible to ignore the obvious symmetry with the events that would take place 100 years later. Exactly 100 years after Bacon was arguing the June laws, another Virginian, Thomas Jefferson, was busy drafting the Declaration of Independence. At the same time, George Washington was leading colonial forces against the British Army. And while not a huge player, we seriously can't miss the fact that Washington's great-grandfather was directly involved in the events leading up to Bacon's Rebellion. The entire thing is so perfect that it makes it difficult at times to remember that they were in fact separate events. The timing of the two conflicts sets up a situation that so perfectly suggests that Bacon's Rebellion was some kind of prelude to the American Revolution that it is an easy idea to grasp onto it. This is not even to mention that there was at least some evidence that those involved in Bacon's Rebellion at a minimum flirted with the question of what if we sought independence? For the Crown, Bacon's Rebellion had been nothing short of a disaster. A corrupt governor had allowed conditions to get so bad that it threw the entire colony into open rebellion. Well, actual independence had little chance of success in 1676, the English were not anxious to find out. For the brief time that such dreams took over the minds of Bacon's rebels, there were thoughts that maybe they could strike an alliance with the Dutch, who had just years before lost control over New York. Back in London, there was at least some concern that the rebellion could expand and sweep through the remaining North American colonies. The relationship between the home islands and New England had never been wonderful, and as we will see in episodes to come, certainly was not improving during the 1670s. And it is not much of a stretch to think that they would have been happy to join in the rebellious fun. Yet, despite some wishful thinking, and again that deep desire to connect Bacon's rebellion to the events that would take place a century later, independence didn't really seem in the cards in 1676. The colony was still dependent on England, and more than likely lacked the ability to break away and survive. As it follows in London, the fear really wasn't an independent set of North American colonies, but rather that rebellions were expensive. With the colony taking up arms, London was now losing money. Men were busy rebelling, which means that valuable tobacco crops were not being properly tended. By the summer of 1676, it's estimated that the rebellion had cost England at least £100,000. 
Furthermore, landing troops in Virginia itself was not going to be a cheap undertaking. For the Crown, it wasn't therefore about just ending the rebellion, it was about making sure that the colonists would not be able to turn around and rebel again. In London, it was known that Bacon was a popular figure, and they were all pretty well aware that everybody hated Berkeley's guts. This explains why the English were not super anxious to work with Berkeley upon their arrival, and basically just wanted him to stay out of the way. Well, to a degree, the commissioners sent over to Virginia agreed to concessions to the common planters, their time in the colony was often seen as being heavy-handed. The English government sought to get control over the colony from the local level on up. However, this did little but to cause anger amongst the colonists. Since 1607, Virginia had largely been autonomous, and now suddenly the king and his commissioners were trying to rework all levels of government inside the colony. Ultimately, this attempt is going to be what pushes the common planters and the great planters of the colony into an alliance that is basically going to last up until the American Revolution a century later. They may have had their differences, but everybody could universally agree that they hated the continuing English interference in their daily lives. This ultimately becomes our postscript on the overall rebellion. Sure, Bacon was dead and his rebellion had been put down. However, much had changed because of it. Berkeley had been disposed. A lot of those hated taxes had now been rolled back. Most importantly, however, that alliance of the great planters and the common planters comes into existence. This relationship is going to help to begin to create an American identity in the century to come. Suddenly, the colonists found themselves thinking about their position in the empire far more than they had before. This question is going to continue to be at the forefront in the North American colonies for the next decade as the Glorious Revolution approaches. In this way, the attempts of the Stuart governments to intervene in local governments would profoundly backfire on them. Mismanagement is going to again push the colony to the brink of disaster in 1682, when colonists are fed up over the falling prices of tobacco. As Berkeley had feared decades earlier, having a single crop that you're completely reliant on made for an extremely volatile economy. And while the king's policies of heavy-handedness may not have been the sole cause of falling tobacco prices, as it appears that bigger culprit had been overproduction in the face of stagnating demand, it was much easier to point the finger at the English on the ground. During the riots in 1682, Virginians of all classes took up burning vast amounts of their crops with the hope that by having less supply, it would drive prices back up. This put the English government into the unenviable position of having to quell the newest riots. Riots that were widely supported by all Virginians as the oversupply of tobacco threatened to hurt them all. Even though the king wanted to concede changes to the common planters, the heavy involvement in local politics and the English attempts to micromanage to prevent another rebellion created a situation conducive to the common and great planters in Virginia coming together. The tobacco riots in 1682 helped to further cement the two rivals against the perceived enemy in the English occupiers who, in the mind of Virginians, wanted to keep the tobacco prices low and hence tried to quash the new rebellion. This change is reflected largely in what it meant to be an American colonist, and becomes apparent in other areas as well. For example, one of the biggest, largely unintended results of Bacon's rebellion can be seen in the very sudden rise of slavery in Virginia. While there are numerous theories out there for why there was such a sudden rise in the prevalence of slavery following the rebellion, 
One of the major theories is that it stems from this fundamental change in thinking regarding the place of the colonists within the empire. Prior to the rebellion, people viewed the colonies as a big get-rich-quick scheme. You could go over to the colonies, make your fortune, and then head back to London to spend it in peace. In that situation, the investment into a slave really did not seem worth it. You're not going to be there that long, and an indentured servant would provide more than enough years for you to conclude your business in the colonies. Following Bacon's rebellion, however, that paradigm gets turned on its head. Already changing before the rebellion, as more and more people born in the colonies wanted to stay there, and as immunity to the local diseases grew, people were now living longer. However, during the rebellion, we see that both sides are more than willing to use the indentured servants of the enemy force against them, with early freedom being the price to pay. People staying in the colonies longer, and possibly for their entire lives, in conjunctions with concerns over indentured servants rising up and killing them, made slavery look like a much more attractive option. There was a general belief that controlling an African slave would prove far easier to accomplish than controlling indentured servants. There are other reasons as well. For example, protection in the Caribbean in the late 60s had peaked, which in turn drove down their demand for slaves, thus pushing the cost lower, which opened up new markets. These are things that we are going to talk more about in the future, so don't worry about that too much for today. Regardless, however, following Bacon's rebellion, there is a noticeable shift away from indentured servants and towards African slaves. Bacon's rebellion had fundamentally changed the landscape of Virginia in ways that are going to have long-lasting effects. The changes coming out of the rebellion are going to remain in place for the next 100 years as the colonists in Virginia continue to form their own identity that is largely separate from the English identity across the Atlantic. Bacon's Rebellion, however, wasn't some isolated event in Virginia. As I mentioned during our first episode on the rebellion, all throughout the colonies, tensions were rising as there was a general uneasiness towards English policy. Beginning next time, we are going to head back up north to New England. While Bacon's Rebellion was getting ramped up in Virginia, New England was engaged in King Philip's War. Next time, we are going to begin unraveling King Philip's War and all the consequences it would bring to New England. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks and that you are staying healthy and staying safe. I will see you back here then as we begin looking at King Philip's War. <laughs>